Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in with us this week. We have a really important topic to cover. And before we dive into it, I I want to dedicate this show, this episode of Go Green Radio to someone who was a real champion for what we're going to be talking about, extended producer responsibility, particularly as it pertains to pharmaceuticals and sharps, John Waffenschmidt, who had an impact on people from literally coast to coast and was a great champion of extended producer responsibility and environmental justice and actually was an employee of the the company that sponsors Go Green Radio, Covanta Energy. Um, He passed away this week, and we are all heavy-hearted as we think about him, and his his legacy is all over the issue that we are going to be talking about today. I'm happy to bring on our guest, Heidi Sanborn, who's also a very good friend of John Waffenschmidt. She is the senior advisor um, and a former executive director of the California Product Stewardship Council, the CPSC. And she and I are going to be talking about how California has recently passed some groundbreaking legislation to lead the nation on safe drug and needle disposal. Heidi, welcome to Go Green Radio, and I'd love to give you a chance to share some of your reflections about um, our our mutual friend, John Waffenschmidt. Thank you, Jill. It's an honor to be here, and today of all days, since we just found out yesterday that John passed uh, pretty suddenly, um, John was on our board. He was the founding, one of the founding board members for the National Stewardship Action Council, which is the council we started to help do what we do in California nationally. And um, his passion to protect people from uh, drug abuse, um, getting medications out of the home before they started fueling addictions. Uh, he saw the devastation that families had, um, and he cared. He cared very, very much personally and, and did everything he could professionally and personally to help people uh, get out of addiction and also prevent addiction and uh, while also protecting the environment. And so we... I, I don't even know what to say. I'm just so shocked and sad to hear that John's gone, but it's, it's to me, um, very appropriate that we dedicate the show to John, the, that he left us, and that he's here with us in spirit and would be delighted and did leave, live to see the day that we actually passed the bill we had worked on for eight years, and hopefully will have an impact now across the country as well. So, John, we miss you, but we're here doing the good work that you taught us how to do. So That's right. That's right. Well, I know that this bill, uh, Senate Bill 212 here in California, was quite a major legislative victory. And I'd love to give you some time to tell us about that bill and how it's going to impact California. Yes. Well, the bill actually started as an idea way back in in 20, 2009. Uh, we had just formed the California Product Stewardship Council and uh, Several supervisors from Alameda County had approached us as major funders and uh, believers that manufacturers should share in responsibility and said, look, the big problem we have in our county right now is this drug addiction, and it's fueled by all these loose, you know, medicines around that are highly addictive, and when people can't get them anymore, they then turn to heroin, and that starts a needle problem and addiction with that. So they asked us to 
look at producer responsibility policy as a way to manage needles and medicines. And we said we're happy to, and there are programs for medicines all over the world that are funded by the drug companies, um, but we think this is probably the hardest fight you'll ever pick. Are you sure you want to pick it? And they said yes, Mm -hmm. because it was a public Mm -hmm. health and safety issue. So with everybody's eyes wide open, we went down the path of um, Alameda County trying to pass an ordinance uh, making the drug companies pay for safe medicine disposal. They had tried it voluntarily for years. They were working with senior groups and with drug abuse prevention groups, and they realized they just couldn't do this voluntarily. There just wasn't enough data, money, consistency, oversight, and so they realized they needed to get a sustainable funding source, and the only way they could get it was from the manufacturers, and that's why they turned to us to help with that policy development. And multiple, multiple hearings and years of work and flying, you know, stewardship leaders, Jeanette Vanasse from Canada all the way down to Alameda and Oakland and presented to even all the drug companies how they do the same program up there. And they were still very resistant, so Alameda passed the ordinance in 2012, uh, promptly got sued within six months um, by Pharma and and, uh, two other organizations of drug manufacturers, and it led to a Supreme Court case that uh, ultimately was upheld and found for Alameda that they could regulate manufacturers to pay for the collection program if there was a direct uh, public health and safety issue, which clearly there is with safe medicine disposal. So that's how we got to this place, and then multiple counties followed, and then that resulted in ultimately years of bills at the state level getting nowhere. Finally, in 2018, we were able to pass it and had a 39-0 to vote off the Senate floor to the governor, bipartisan uh, support off the floor, Republicans and Democrats both getting up and saying how important it was. So, you know, it's one of those stories of um, kind of a David and Goliath, but also mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's it's doable if you stick with it and you are clear that, you know, for businesses, they don't want a patchwork of rules. And we don't want that for them. It's easier to comply with a state rule. But if we cannot work together to pass state legislation and harmonize it, the option for local governments is to proceed anyway, and that's what they did, which ultimately led to the, the great result we have now, which is the drug companies and the needle manufacturers will have two separate programs, and um, they get to design the program themselves with certain parameters in the law, but they will pay to run it. Uh, they design it, run it, fund it, and promote it to the public, and that's the first in the nation. So we're very proud to have accomplished that this year. That is fantastic. And just so, you know, our listeners understand, how will the everyday Californian and and also the California environment benefit from this new legislation? What are some of the upsides? Great question. So the environmental impacts of medicines are pretty well known. Uh, There's been lots of studies about how many medications are ending up in our seafood, for example, Um, because outside of water treatment plants, they cannot process. They were designed to process biological waste, not chemicals. So they cannot uh, capture, destroy the chemicals, every chemical that's uh, either processed through the body that's taken properly or those that are directly injected into the water system from flushing. So we have a serious problem where these chemicals in very small amounts build up in animals' 
and in wildlife and can literally affect the reproduction, can affect their sex, um, and affect even, it, we're finding some uh, salmon, for example, when they have high levels of antidepressants in their system, they literally don't run from predators and get eaten. Oh, my goodness. So there's so many different impacts that we haven't thought through of even uh, small amounts, trace amounts of these chemicals because the animals are so sensitive. And remember, fish live in the water, so they breathe the water, and everything in the water is literally filtered through their body and becomes, you know, very reactive. So we have to be very careful about what we put in the water. Um, so that's one environmental impact. With needles, we have had an outra- um, a lot of support from Surfrider, uh, Clean Water Action, and other groups because needles are ending up on beaches, on riverbanks. They are affecting people that try to even do beach cleanups. There are some groups now who won't even let children work on beach cleanups. There are so many needles turning up on the beaches. Uh, but, again, it starts usually we can trace most of this new needle use um, for illegal drugs back to the prescription drug abuse problem because when they cannot get the prescriptions, they turn to heroin and street drugs, and then they start using the needles that way. And uh, unfortunately, people that are addicted are very, very sick, and they you know, often just leave the needles where they use them. And that's often on the edge of rivers, and then when the waters come up, it flushes it all out into the ocean. And if you think about animals, they, for example, whales and, and largemouth filter feeders, they open their mouth, get a big bunch of water, and filter the fish and the plankton and so forth through their their mouth, and that's how they eat. Well, if there's needles in there, it's puncturing their stomach, they're inside of their, their gullet, and these are the things that are happening when we find, you know, fish with a lot of plastics, needles, toothbrushes, all this stuff in their stomach because they can't process it out, and it wasn't, that's not how they evolved, <laughs> so they can't regurgitate it. Um, and a lot of stomach wounds we're finding in the animals that, are autopsied and pulled up off the beach. They've had a lot of sharp plastics, needles and things poking into their stomach until it just can't operate anymore. So there's a lot of environmental impacts from these products and what led to everybody coming together to push for the bills. That's, you know, I've also heard of uh, needles ending up in municipal solid waste. Uh, You know, do you have some stories about what happens with that? Oh, boy, we have stories. So... One thing, so for medicines, you know, obviously anybody can become addicted. And a lot of working people even have addictions, and they seem to be able to function somewhat and go to work. So you don't want all kinds of pills going across a recycling sort line because if somebody does have a problem, especially if it's in its original container and they know what it is, you know, they could become addicted. The other thing is some of these are um, very, very dangerous, even in dust and can affect their health by breathing the dust. So if there's a lot of uh, pills that come across the sort line, for example, that have dust associated with them, they could breathe it, they can come through the skin. Um, And again, many of these pills are designed to have a high effect at a very low dose. So when you're doing this every day and exposed to these things, it can be dangerous. Needles are very, very dangerous to our workers. We've had many, many stories of... um, literally weekly in California where someone is stuck on a sort line. The needles are thrown into the trash. Sometimes they're put in plastic bottles or coffee cans. Often they're just left loose or wrapped in tissue paper, which is worse because we can't see what's in it. 
and even mm-hmm. with gloves that have been designed 27 different times to become stronger to prevent people from getting needle sticks, some of these needles, especially on pen needles, are very, very small, and they're, they have no color to them, so they can't see them. And they are designed to puncture, so they do puncture even sometimes the best gloves. One gentleman I heard was working in a garbage truck up in Washington State. He had his arm out the cab window and picked up a cart, a semi-automated, you know, arm on the truck came out, picked up the cart. There were so many needles loose in that garbage can. One of them flew out and literally poked the driver in the arm. Oh, no. That is, yes. And then and other examples we have, and I've got pictures of this, where a poor gal up in uh, Tehama County, fairly rural county, was on the sort line, and a, it turned out later they traced it back to a dog blood bank, had thrown all the tubing and the needles, blood and all, into the trash, and um, she got stuck sorting the recyclables out of the line because the line is moving, and they're asked to pick things very, very quickly, and you can't yes. always identify the needle before you stick your hand in there. She was so traumatized she got PTSD and didn't go back to work. That's, uh, you know, it raises our insurance costs. She's traumatized. She's got to go through the testing. Um, And thankfully, we were able to trace back where it came from and make sure those people don't do that again. But it's extremely serious when people put needles in the trash. We also have, um, I've got many, many examples of people that have gotten stuck um, even one truck driver, he's actually um, a front-load driver at um, mm-hmm. a landfill down in Southern California, got stuck because he was cleaning the tires of his truck, and apparently needles were stuck in the tires, and he didn't see them. Wow. They just went right through his glove and That's cut them. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk much more about this and how this new piece of legislation is going to help really address these kinds of issues and keep people safe. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you're all joining us. And if you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking with Heidi Sanborn. She is a senior advisor for the California Product Stewardship Council, CPSC. And they are behind a very significant piece of legislation that was just signed by the governor in California back in the fall, uh, late September, early October. And it's a bill that is going to provide a statewide drug take back and needle, or if we're being specific, a sharp take back um, that is funded by the producers of those items. And Heidi is talking with us today about the provisions of that bill and what the new program is going to look like. Um, Heidi, talk to us about whether or not retail pharmacies will be involved, because I know that when people hear about what's coming with this program, they'll wonder, well, where am I going to, if I don't already know where to take my my sharps and my unneeded pharmaceuticals, where am I going to be able to, to do that? What's going to be considered a legal location for these receptacles? Great question. Um, the one foundation um, of producer responsibility policies is that the producers, because they truly pay for the program, get to design the program, but they have to meet the performance standards set by government. So government, uh, the state will draft some regulations, and for both the needle program and the pill program, they will design some standards that have to be met by the industry, and then the industry has to meet those uh, program goals uh, however they see fit within parameters that were in the law. So, for example, on medicines, the law said that the pills, um, they have to have, for homebound people, they have to provide a collection system that might be with mailback envelopes because we want to make sure that people who are homebound or in very rural areas still have access to the program. But for people where there's density of population or people who are not homebound can get to these uh, bins. They almost look like mailboxes. Um, they, ha- they can only be in pharmacies, hospitals with pharmacies, or law enforcement locations uh, if they take controlled medicines. Those in the bill, we said there has to be at least five per county of the bins, and if any pharmacy or host that wants a bin and asks for one has to be provided one within 90 days. So that means virtually any location and every location could have one mm-hmm. if they want it. Um, and that if we don't have the convenient standards met, that the retailers would have to provide, I believe it was 15% of their locations in any county. Mm, So that's pretty high standard of convenience. Then on the the needle side, they wanted a mail-back program, not a centralized bin sort of program. And the conditions that we agreed to that are that, one, when you get your needle, you must be provided with a safe mail-back prepaid container 
So the day you get home, if you use a needle, you've got something to put it back into, and it's prepaid and goes back through the mail. Mm-hmm. And two, if that program did not work very well, there's an incentive for them to make it work well because they're going to have to reimburse local governments that end up with a bunch of needles at their uh, collection facilities because we don't believe the government should be cleaning up the medical waste and have to pay for it. So that's the, that, those are the conditions. So it would be a mail-back program uh, for the, the needles and both a bin and a mail-back program for medications. Interesting. Boy, that's going to be great. How, how long do you think it'll take? Because, you know, once a bill is signed by the governor, it goes through a lot. There's a lot that goes into creating the actual policy. Um, you know, any idea how long it might take to actually see the program up and going? Yes, it's going to take three to four years because it's going to take the state, they've told us a minimum of two years just to write the oversight regulations. And then it's going to take the stewardship organizations, the manufacturers, about a year to 18 months to really get an approved plan by the state and get it implemented and out on the street. So the good news is um, since the bill has passed, I've been hearing that there are companies out there working to, because now they really have a motivation to do this too, is to redesign the delivery of some of the drugs that were injectable to be more of a patch that has little tiny uh, teeny tiny needles in them that you really wouldn't even notice. They just sit on the skin and direct, you know, directly put the, the medication in through the skin and other ways so that we don't have as many needles, which is very exciting. Um, the other thing is that the uh, medication disposal groups, we've got a grant. We just were able to win a grant from the state for $3 million to um, put out over 270 new medication collection bins in the next two years and pay for disposal. So, and that's to focus really on the drug abuse prevention side of things. And we're very excited to start work on that. We'll be actually putting out a request in January for new pharmacists to um, ask for the bins or hospitals and we'll provide them. We want to focus on areas that have high drug abuse problems that don't have bins now. But that is kind of an interim program that mm-hmm. will help bridge that gap until the, the bill becomes effective. And hopefully the manufacturers can then take over those bins and run them after, you know, when they start the program. So very excited about having that opportunity too. And we still have bins out. They're not nearly as prevalent as they need to be, but you can go to don'trushtoflush.org and we have a Facebook page too where we've put up every bin we know of in the state of California. It's on a statewide map. Mm -hmm. So you can go look for your opportunities there now today and that are available seven days a week. Yep. I did that last night, actually. I was checking that that website out, and I put in my zip code, and I found that within like a two-mile radius, there were three places that I could go. But then again, I live in Alameda County, so <laughs> I am we, we yeah. are on the, the, the tip of the spear. The but um, <laughs> Yep, exactly. You know, I was looking at the website for the California Product Stewardship Council, uh, you know, throughout the course of this week, and you have information about how pharmaceutical companies have extended producer responsibility or EPR programs in other countries. So why has it been so hard to get this enacted in the United States? It's very political. Um, the medication, the drug companies are some of the most highly profitable companies in the world. 
and they have huge profit margins in the United States. So they have and use that money to influence politics. In fact, one one, uh, research group back in 2015 estimated that pharma, uh, the associations of, um, well, not even just uh, that association, but the drug companies in general were spending $50,000 a day just to lobby at the national level. (laughs) So in order to pass these bills with that kind of money flying around when elected officials need money to run for office in the United States, this is, this is the whole discussion of who's got more voice. Is it the people or is it the companies? And, you know, I can tell you what we saw early on in California was the companies were winning. We were not winning. The, mm-hmm. we, had, we had literally lists three, four pages long of supporters for the original bill that was at the state level in 2014. Senior groups, uh, drug abuse prevention, water, everybody came out, local governments. The only opposition was the five, five associations of pharma, and they were able to easily kill it after the first committee. Wow. So it took us that many years, and honestly, we would not have been able to get there unless we had passed them at the local level to force the industry to, to the point where they said, stop with the local ordinances. We need harmonization of rules. And we said, yeah, we knew that that day would come. That was the strategy. Let's talk now. But we had to get them to the place where they were even willing to seriously negotiate a bill. Well, and talk to us about that, Heidi, because here's the thing. You know, we are seeing, and this is great, we're seeing so many young people um, in this country getting excited about creating change, creating a world that they want to to live in and they're proud of. Um, But I think sometimes they they aren't sure of the the amount of perseverance, the kind of time and, you know, varying strategies that sometimes it takes. Talk to us about how you you created this pressure uh, by these local ordinances and how that led to ultimately the goal, which was a state bill. Well, it started with the bag bans. They weren't successful at doing that at the state level. And um, I think it was at the time Assemblymember Padilla, Alex Padilla, uh, he sent a letter to all the counties and said, you guys need to push from the bottom and pass local ordinances to get them to the table here at the state level. And then with, I think they ended up with 120-some-odd ordinances locally, which drove the conversation and finally the bill to pass at the state level. So we thought, well, we should go up. We, that strategy worked. We should try it. So when the bill first died in, at the state level, um, Senator Hannah-Beth Jackson from Santa Barbara, who was the key author on this uh, from the beginning, she sent a letter to all the counties and said, we can't get them to the table until you guys take action. Here's an, a model ordinance from Alameda. We encourage you to do the same. And then the ordinances just started flowing. And then the industry first thought, okay, we'll preempt them. So they tried to build to preempt local governments from doing ordinances. We killed it. That took a whole year um, and a lot of fighting. And it just was, we wore them down. I mean, basically it was just a, a level of tenacity and I really believe that when you're on the right side of history and you're doing the right thing for the right reasons, that it will work out, but you can't quit. You've got to stay with it, stay on it. And that's what we did. We were relentless. So once we dig down and bite, it's like we're not letting go until we get it done. And that's what we did. And, and all the, the partners that helped us, uh, many, many, many up and down the state, county supervisors, uh, associations like the Association of Retired Americans, um, Cara, many of the groups just just were with us all the way, 
and they were willing to keep going if we hadn't got this done. I mean, we would have just kept doing one ordinance at a time. We had three teed up that um, uh, Sonoma County and, and Tehama County actually got preempted because they didn't pass it before we negotiated this bill, and the date that we came to the real agreement was April 18th, and that was in the bill that anything passed after that date in 2018 would be preempted. But the mm-hmm. bills that already passed, the local ordinances, they were not preempted. They can opt into the program, but they can't have the program taken away from them if they like their version better. I, I love this, Heidi, and I just hope that our listeners take note of a couple of very important components of what you just said. Tenacity and perseverance are definitely top of the list, but coalition building. You had partners from every conceivable stakeholder group in the state. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, the Sierra Club and your typical players at the environmental level. You had, you know, senior citizens and all, just every walk of life in the state represented on your list of coalitions. And I love that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Heidi Sanborn. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us and very, very honored to have our guest today, Heidi Sanborn, a great champion and and a good friend of mine. Uh, 
she has really been active for many years trying to get a bill passed that just got signed by the governor in California um, back in the fall. And it will create a statewide drug take back and needle take back program that is paid for by the producers of those materials. And Heidi, we touched on this lightly in an earlier segment, but I really want you to go into a little bit more detail so people really understand the connection here. You know, we we routinely hear about the opioid crisis in America. How will a drug take back program like the one that California will be setting up, how will it specifically impact that problem? It's a great question. Uh, One of the reports that came out of the Obama administration's national drug control strategy, they have um, reported every year on what that group came out with as the key um, pillars on stopping prescription drug abuse. And one of the four key pillars was to provide safe and convenient and free collection of medications nationally because 70% of children who start on their drug abuse path are getting them out of the home from friends and family who leave them unlocked. So it's incredibly important, and, and this is a message I have for everyone, especially during the holidays. You have people coming through your home. Do not leave controlled medicines and addictive drugs anywhere that people can find them. Lock them up like they're guns because statistically they're actually more dangerous and they need to be locked up. We think of, you know, when we grew up, we had little, you know, mirrors with little things in the bathroom or people just Mm -hmm. put their baby aspirin and so forth. It's not Ben Gay anymore. We're talking about highly addictive drugs and they should not be left. So anybody who uses the facilities in your home can grab those medications and go. And sometimes they'll just grab a couple pills. And that's all it takes to start addiction. So mm-hmm. it's incredibly important that we pull the fuel out of the public hands as soon as possible. So if you need an addictive substance for your, for your health and for pain, what have you, please make sure you lock them up. When you're done with them, make sure they're properly disposed of quickly and out of your home and not through the toilet. And that's, yeah. that's really the key message we have for people. <laughs> That's right. The toilet is not a good trash can. Trash can's not a good trash can either for for drugs. Right. And you mentioned the Don't Rush to Flush campaign, but I didn't give you a lot of time to go over what exactly is involved in that. So I want to give you a chance to tell us about the Don't Rush to Flush campaign. Thank you. Well, the Don't Rush to Flush campaign we started four or five years ago with uh, grants from the Rose Foundation, which actually takes finds from polluters and gives them to groups like ours that protect uh, from pollution. And we started the campaign because we thought we needed something fun and catchy to raise awareness about the importance of safe medicine disposal. And it became, it it won an award by our Sacramento um, public service uh, PR teams. They named us the best PSA a couple years ago. And we've got a map on there, so you can search for the, through the whole state of California by zip code, where has the medicine been near me? Um, and all the bins that we know of, we post up there. I think we've got the best, best map of, of anyone in the state. And that campaign, really the key is, we don't want you to flush, but please put the meds in the bin and then we all win. 
and mm-hmm. it's catchy, it's fun. We've done whiteboard videos. We've got a Facebook page. Every time we learn of a new bin, we post it on the Facebook page. We try to tag groups in that area so that they all know it's they're there. And there's going to be so many more coming now that we got the grant. We're going to put them all up there. So uh, at least California will have a broad swath of, of collection. In fact, Alameda County now, and Jill in your county, has 70 bins all paid for by the drug companies. Fantastic. So and, I mean, it is so handy. I mean, you really do not have to go out of your way at all. I mean, in the course of running regular errands around town, it's very easy to do this. And and everyone I know is taking advantage of it without any worries, any concerns. And it, it is fantastic um, to know that those those items are being disposed of properly. It It's it's a great service, and thank you for what you've done to make that happen, Heidi. Um, well, thank you. Now, the California Product Stewardship Council isn't just focused on drugs and sharp take-back programs. You have done a lot of other work and other materials to get extended producer responsibility uh, programs going on other products. Talk to us about your work with carpet, because I know you guys had a big win back in 2017. Tell us about that. So we um, have been working on carpet because in 2010, the legislature got a report from the EPA saying that carpet was the fourth highest generator of greenhouse gases that it's getting landfilled. Most of the carpet in the United States is plastic. It's not wool. So that is a fossil fuel. It has a huge greenhouse gas footprint, and it can be recycled if you keep it clean, roll it up, keep it dry, and get it to the right recycler. So... We worked with the legislature. The bill we didn't think was strong enough, um, but the legislature went forward with it as it was. And some of the problems we predicted with that bill came to fruition. Um, And we went back in 2017 and said, this has got to get cleaned up. So we we fixed some big gaps in the original bill, which were, um, for example, it's a visible fee program. So the money came really from consumers and then was handed to an industry group On true producer responsibility, the producers actually design, run, and fund the program. If they want to pass that on in the cost, visibly or invisibly, that's fine. But in this program, it was actually set up so that consumer money was handed to an out-of-state industry group. And we think that's a really dangerous precedent. Um, There was a lot of problems with it. One of them was, um, how do you get your money back? If this program doesn't work, there's no transition plan to get our, you know, $13 million of California carpet recycling fee money back to a program operator who will do the job, problem number one. Problem number two is that they, you know, um, really weren't doing a very good job. The performance standard in the original bill was continuous and meaningful improvement, which is extremely vague. We changed that to be 24% recycling rate by 2020, which is very clean, clear, easy for CalRecycle to, to measure. Um, we also prevented them from using the fee money to pay any fines for failure to meet the goals the state set because mm-hmm. that's not what people are paying the fee for. They're paying the fee to get the program so that they can have their carpet recycled. Um, we also prevented the fee money from being used to burn. People, again, paying the fee don't expect their carpet to be getting burned with it. They expect it to be getting recycled. And right. not that we're against combustion, obviously, but and it's certainly... Um, especially in Europe, their hierarchy is that it's higher than landfill disposal, which really doesn't solve anything. Um, But, you know, it is the least best option if you can recycle it. Right, exactly. 
so, and we didn't think the fee should be going for that. So, um, if if it does get burned and the energy is recovered, that's that's a way to dispose of it. But in our state, that's still disposal. That's not recycling. So, anyway, we fixed a lot of that, and still, this program is really on the edge of not really working well. We're only still at sixteen percent recycling rate. We should be closer to twenty four at this point, and um, so we're not sure if this is going to work with this particular industry group. But the good news is this. California is the only state in the world. Nobody else has regulated carpet. And because of what we've done, I've been talking with the Europeans in Brussels, and they are now very serious about going after carpet because they see the impact on greenhouse gases. It's huge. And if we can close that loop, recycle, and keep the jobs here in California, we want that. And so good news that came out of this bill is Aquafil, a large company out of Europe, actually designed a new facility that takes nylon six carpet, fishing nets, anything out of nylon six, and makes it into a pure pellet that can be made into Stella McCartney handbags and uh, interface carpet, uh, buys most of the, a lot of their product, and closes the loop forever. And so that plant is opening in January in Woodland, just outside of Sacramento, because we passed the bill. So wow. we're very proud of where it's going but it's taking longer than it should have. So we, we like to advise other states that if you're interested in doing something like this, to please let us know, and we're happy to share what we've learned. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that some of our listeners may be new to the concept of extended producer responsibility, EPR. So I'd like to give you a minute to help us understand this particular you know, piece of it. How does extended producer responsibility, if it's really enacted in its purest form, how does it change the role of government when it comes to managing end-of-life systems for products that are in their jurisdictions? So instead of the government, so I'll back up. A hundred years ago, when we started with garbage collection, it was because people were literally just walking down to the river and then waiting for the river to wash it away. Mm-hmm. That or they would throw it in a hole in the ground and set it on fire. Mm-hmm. When we had nothing but glass, paper, leather, basic products, or you know, natural products, that was one thing. But over time, what's happened is we have evolved into what we call these horrible hybrids where it's multiple types of materials in the same product. They're not designed to be separated, um, they're, and we can't recycle them. There is no market for them. And some of them are dangerous, like electronics, as you know, are growing tremendously in our lives, and we don't have good recycling systems for them. And and some of them have heavy metals and even gold that are extremely valuable and are mined and create a lot of environmental degradation just getting them, and then we just throw them in a landfill. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. So the, the products have changed so much over time that government can't be the only ones funding the recovery. So what's happened is in the U.S., we've looked around to the rest of the world and said, how are they doing it? And in Europe and other places, Canada, for example, they're 25 years ahead of us. They've been making the manufacturers design better and take their stuff back and manage it for decades. And it's way more effective than our system. So our recycling system now, widely across the country for packaging, let's say, is in, you know, 20, 30%. You go to Europe and places like Belgium, they're over 90%. Mm-hmm. And it's because they've been working on this. But the manufacturers and the source of how things are made, those people have to be talking to government because 
if we're just in government, like with the, I could say with a big catcher's mitt, trying to catch and recycle everything put on the free market, when we had zero insight or, or you know, thoughts into what it's made out of, how are we going to recover it? What markets exactly. do we have for it? We just can't do it. It's impossible. Right. So we've got well, to and get I the think- help from the big companies. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point for consumers to understand because if if they're seeing like, oh, this could make my products cost more, uh, you know, if 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 the producers have to take it back, well, in actuality, you're still paying for that end of life situation when you're paying your taxes and your garbage bill. So, um, you know, by putting it back on the producers, we're actually going to help them. Uh, become more innovative in their design so that it's easier to dispose of when they have to deal with the end-of-life situation for their products. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we've got so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just tuning in, I'll catch you up. Our guest today is Heidi Sanborn. She's the Senior Advisor for the California Product Stewardship Council. She's also part of a national organization, which we'll talk about in just a moment, um, that works on extended producer responsibility um, issues. That's EPR uh, for those who know the little acronym there. And um, Heidi, I'd love for you to talk about... um, 
you know, for, for our listeners who may want to enact uh, similar EPR legislation in their states, if they haven't already, give us some advice, help them know what to do next as they navigate these waters that you've been in for many years. I would encourage them to call us because um, whether it's at the local level or at the state level, there's a lot of politics around this, and um, every state and every community is different, and there's lots of different ways you can write things, and I'd be happy to help them and give advice on how to, how to do this in other areas. I can also advise on some of the things, you know, like in our bill, I was hoping we could get animal needles and home generated from pets, um, pet meds, uh, even pets mm-hmm. take Prozac. Um, but those were exempted out of the bill due to a lobby and the Cattlemen's Association and others got involved. And, of course, we, we have no intention of going after cattle <laughs> and large animals that are raised on farms. But, you know, those, those are the kind of things that uh, details matter. Um, and we'd like to, we got a really good bill, but it could have been even better. And so we hope that everybody will leapfrog on us and, and learn from what we did, but also take it to the next level. So we'd love to work with anybody in, uh, across the country on how to do this. New York State did pass a pharmaceutical take-back bill um, this year. So did Washington State, but we were the only state to also do needles. And those are the two major home-generated medical wastes that have been a real problem for the recycling and solid waste system. So we, we encourage others to do the same and would love to help. Well, that sounds great. And what are some of the ways that people can reach out to you? Um, if you want to throw out a website URL or, or what have you, just let us know. What's the best way to, to reach your organization? You can go to www.calpsc.org, and that's the California Product Stewardship Council's website. Um, my phone number is 916-217-1109, and you can call me anytime. Um, email me at Heidi at calpsc.org, and I'm happy to respond and talk to you about uh, anything you want to take on. We did hear that others, there are several other states that want to do the same this year, and we'd love to help. That's awesome. Do you expect that there will ever be a time when successful EPR legislation will move at the federal level, or do you think that it's going to be mostly a state-level issue going forward? Um, the, what we found is that you can have the most the, – the companies have the most influence politically at the highest levels of government where they give mm-hmm. the most money. So what we found is that they have the least influence at the local level. So I really encourage starting local first to create the um, awareness and the pressure that then leads to state legislation. Because if you start with state first or national first, you're going to end up with what you know I call the lowest common denominator sort of bills. The bills mm-hmm. that everybody can agree on at that high a level are usually not very good. So you've got to start local. Yeah, they get very watered down. Um, like what happened with carpet. We started at the state level. We didn't, but it was being introduced, and it was just too high a level. We didn't prove that we, need, that we could do it locally. We didn't put enough pressure on the industry um, or the legislature before that discussion started. So it just was too low of a bar, and mm-hmm. that's unfortunate. And it takes years to unwind those, so I'd really rather see 
local, especially if you've got big cities who are willing to take it on, like Chicago. We worked with Chicago. They passed it. They're now working on getting the producers to pay. But, um, you know, that's a better way, I think, to start in large cities and then go to the state level because it typically their lobbyists really water it down by the time it gets through a full legislature. But nationally, I don't see anything uh, getting done. In fact, we were we were kind of disappointed that the feds gave out all these grants, um, even though that we're getting one of them for the safe medicine bins, because we don't think it's the role of government to clean up the medical industry's mess, especially with the profit margins and the cost that they're charging for drugs in America. It's almost obscene. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they have the money to do this, and they do it in other parts of the world, including Mexico and Canada, where we go to get our less expensive drugs. So it's, it's not wow. as it was... In the Alameda court case, it was found that there was no cost burden. One legislature, a legislator said to me, it's budget dust <laughs> to them. But to local government, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, Heidi, I, I really can't emphasize this enough. A lot of our listeners are either college students who are looking to get into, you know, meaningful sustainability work at some point, um, or they are, we have a lot of listeners who are in their 20s who are early in their careers, and they want to be a part of positive change. They want to get involved with public policy. But, you know, so many times all they see is something at the national level, or let's go you know, paint a sign and do a protest for something which has its place. But if you really want to create change, the model that you're suggesting is very different from what most young people are exposed to. What advice do you have for our listeners who are in that age range who want to be, you know, sustainability warriors, help them, you know, with with their some of their decisions that they're going to be making soon? What advice do you have? Well, the, the, the best advice I can give is while you're in school, do some internships with groups that are like-minded to see what you really like because it's different being a regulator or being a business sustainability manager than it is being an advocate on the outside. Um, my personnel, I've done all of them, and um, I think for me I've been very effective at the advocacy because I worked in government. I saw how it worked. I also saw where it was I thought too slow, and I thought, you know, we could push and be more strategic on the outside to get things done, and, and it's, I think, panned out that that's right. So I've really enjoyed it, and I, uh, but it's not for everybody. So I would look at jobs, like we're hiring two people right now, so you can go onto our website and look at, um, we're hiring a program manager, and now we're going out for a position on an administrative assistant. So uh, we're growing, other groups are growing, there's product stewardship councils in other states, there's one in Texas, mm-hmm. there's one in um, Minnesota, one in Vermont. So, you know, look for those product stewardship councils, and look for the people who are really being effective, that you yeah. think... Yeah. really are aligning with what you want to do and then try to get that's right behind advice. them to be mentored. That is great advice. And that's the perfect way to wrap this show up with a neat little bow because that is sage advice. Heidi, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you to all of our listeners who tuned in. We will be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.